Hello, and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Charles Thompson. First, an apology. This episode should have been released on the 13th of June, the 18th anniversary of the verdict being handed down in Michael Jackson's trial. Every year, the MJ Cast releases an episode on that date, interviewing a special guest with some connection to the abuse allegations leveled at Michael Jackson. Our past interviewees have included the lead defense attorney Thomas Mesereau, his recently deceased private investigator Scott Ross, and defense witness Brett Barnes. But unfortunately, a technical glitch meant that we couldn't get this year's interview to you in time for June 13th. I'll tell you more about that at the end. This year's guest first came to the world's attention as an anonymous whistleblower. In 1994, the decorated investigative journalist Mary A. Fisher published an article about the molestation allegations leveled against Michael Jackson by Jordan Chandler and his father Evan. Fisher's story included information attributed to a source inside the office of attorney Barry Rothman, suggesting that he and his client, Evan Chandler, had cooked up an extortion plot against Michael Jackson. The story was published in more than one major glossy magazine, and was covered by broadcast media, but the whistleblower's identity was never revealed. In 2003, however, Geraldine Hughes decided to out herself. In 1993, as the Michael Jackson scandal unfolded, she had been working as Barry Rothman's personal legal secretary. She had unrivaled insider access to the nerve centre of the celebrity scandal of the century, bearing witness to many meetings and discussions which took place just metres from her desk. Geraldine had been highly disturbed by what she witnessed, and she felt the public would be as well but most of the media seemed to have adopted the position that Michael Jackson was guilty, and in her view, the full story had never really been told. Geraldine's conscience eventually demanded that she tell the wider public what she'd seen and heard inside the office of Evan Chandler's lawyer. In 2003, just as she was beginning work on a tell-all memoir, news suddenly broke that Michael Jackson was being accused again. Her publishers fast-tracked a press release about the impending book, titled Redemption, and Geraldine found herself on a whirlwind media tour. But once again, the media overwhelmingly adopted an anti-Jackson position. Whilst Geraldine's book would become well-known within the Jackson fan community, her information was largely ignored. But in 2019, Award-winning filmmaker Danny Wu interviewed Geraldine as he investigated the Chandler case for his feature documentary, Square One. Upon its release, Square One became the number one Amazon Prime documentary in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Canada, finally bringing Geraldine Hughes' story to a much wider audience. But in Square One, Geraldine was one voice among many. For the MJ Cast's 2023 Vindication Day episode, we decided to sit down with Geraldine for the most in-depth, one-on-one broadcast interview she had ever given. What you're about to hear is the result. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. 
Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. We become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. So, Geraldine, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be a part of this interview. So whereabouts are you joining us from? I'm in the Los Angeles, California region. Fab, what have you been doing this this Saturday as we talk? Have you been having a good day? Yes, I'm. it's a rest day. I do a, a ministry on Friday and Sunday where we feed the homeless down on Skid Row in LA. So Saturday is my relaxed day. You're catching me on a good day. (laughs) And what are you doing in terms of uh, the rest of your weeks now? Are you still working as a legal secretary or have you left that behind you? Yes, I've retired from the legal field. I've spent 35 good years, gave my best time, and I'm now retired from the legal, well, from the legal field, I'll say. I still have, I'm, I'm pursuing interests. Like I said, I'm a, I have a homeless ministry and, and I have a venture that I've been on for a minute that we're not going to stop until we see it to fruition. We're trying to uh, turn redemption into a movie, a worldwide movie for everybody to see the truth, that we've heard the truth. We've heard the lies too, but we want them to see the truth so that the lies can stop. Okay, yes, I've got a note on my notes here to talk to you about the movie project. But what I want to do right now is go back to the beginning. So can you just talk us through actually, what is a legal secretary for anybody that doesn't know? What is the job of a legal secretary? A legal secretary supports the attorneys in the law office, uh, paralegals and you know, our job is a little bit more, well, we actually do the paperwork. We file documents with the court. We're supposed to be privy to any case that's going on in the office because we're the ones that's preparing all the paperwork for the attorney. I see. So the difference between a, a regular secretary and a legal secretary would be that you are responsible for drafting court documents and things like that. Absolutely. And having more of a a legal knowledge, you know, uh, we're the ones when attorneys have to file documents with the courts, they're not the ones that are filing the documents. We're the ones that are filing the documents. So we have to know how to. We have to have the knowledge of courts, different various courts. And sometimes we're dealing with courts all over the United States. They all have their own way. The requirement is a little bit more technical but it's mainly legal knowledge. You know, you got to legally know how to, if the document is not filed correctly, it gets bounced. They don't tell us how to do it. They just simply bounce it. So our knowledge is more legal knowledge. We have to be up with our codes, uh, legal codes and everything in order to uh, assist the attorneys in uh, filing documents and making sure they get on calendar. You know, we do a lot. We do a lot. Yeah, we keep their calendar as well too. 
So what kind of training do you need to become a legal secretary? Do you have to go to law school? You don't have to go to law school. You The requirements now, as opposed to when I first uh, got into the legal field, it was almost on the job training at the time. They were more concerned with your skill level. You have to have higher skills like a regular secretary only need to be able to type like 50 words a minute. A legal secretary has to be able to pass 100 words per minute. Uh, you have to know legal terms as opposed to a regular secretary. So you have to know software, more sophisticated software, calendaring software, law software, legal software, Lexus, Nexus, and uh, just your skill set is has to be a little bit higher in order to uh, be a legal secretary. So what was it that made you decide that that was what you wanted to do? When and how did you decide to become a legal secretary? I started out by going to court reporting school. I was My interest was to be a stenographer. I was working days and going to school at night. I went for about two and a half years and they discontinued their night program. Because I was working during the day, I was not able to transfer my school to the day because I, you know, I would have had to found a night job. I basically got into the legal field because of my skill set, you know, and plus I had legal knowledge, terminology, uh, court reporting teaches you legal terminology. I was a great candidate to just come in on the ground floor, kind of like, you know, where they're training me as I go along because I had great skills, I already had legal terminology, and that's how I got in. So when did you first start working? as a legal secretary? I believe I started in 81, 81 or 80. I, re- I think it was 1980. I remember that date because I my daughter was born. I had a daughter born in 81. It was a year after. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't remember that date so precisely. So on the jacket for your book, Redemption, you're described as one of Los Angeles's top legal secretaries. So just talk us through your career throughout the 80s, up to the point just before when you started working for Barry Rothman. I guess I got the uh, title of being one of the top legal secretaries because I worked for some of the largest law firms in Los Angeles. I worked for firms like Lilick McColes and Charles, uh, Jones Day Revis. You know, I worked for some of the top legal Uh, law firms. And when you work for the large firms, you acquire a skill set, you know, that you would only possibly get in large law firms. Then I decided to go and work for, they're called the Beverly Hills Bar Association, who furnish top legal secretaries to their uh, attorneys that are in the Beverly Hills area. That's when I started working in the Beverly Hills area, Century City, Beverly Hills, I was kind of like one of the top legal secretaries. I was in high demand. I literally had clients that, you know, were basically only requesting for me to come on board. And I almost remained in that category throughout my, I would say, throughout my whole career. Even now, I'm trying to retire. They're still trying to keep me out there because of my experiences now and because of the skill set that I've established through the years. I actually worked as an office manager. I actually managed a law office and I was really quite good, found out I was really quite good at even that 
but I love the legal work. Office managers is more of a financial thing. You're into billing, bookkeeping. You're into reconciling bank accounts, general accounts, you know, trust accounts. So you're kind of getting away from the fun and the love of being in the legal environment. And that is being involved with cases and being able to follow the cases and working directly with the attorneys on the cases. So I did acquire the experience of being an office manager and have worked as paralegals as well too. But my true love was just, you know, working hand in hand with attorneys on cases and seeing them from beginning to end. And of course, it was your work as a legal secretary, which ended up catapulting you into the middle of the Michael Jackson case in 1993, because you were sent to work for, or you went to work with Barry Rothman, who was the attorney that represented the Chandlers. Now, according to your book, it sounds like the first time you met Barry Rothman was actually in 1992, at which time he had an office on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, and you were sent to temp for him. Is that right? I came independent, though. I wasn't through like an agency. I came to work for him independently, as a, and I do believe it was on a temporary basis. But yes, I worked for him a year before I actually came on board as a permanent secretary. I later found out you know, he had a pretty big turnover. And that's another uh, classification that qualifies you as a, as a top legal secretary, because there was usually a lot of turnover. He had had a lot of turnover. So he needed somebody really good, because if you weren't good, you weren't going to last long with him. You, you wouldn't last a day with him if you were not good. So were you with him continuously from 1992, or did you leave and then come back again in 93? I left uh, because I think it was only just for a certain amount of time. And so I did leave. In 1993, I was looking for a permanent job at that time. And I came back knocking at his door for employment. I don't even think he remembered that I had just worked for him a year prior because his turnover, you know, he had so much of a turnover that I don't think he even really remembered me from 92. Well, you tell a story in the book about how he used to run a scam with receptionists where he would ring up the agencies and get receptionists in for a certain period of time and then claim that they were terrible at their job, send them packing and refuse to pay. And he would just do this over and over again. So he never had to pay for a receptionist. Yeah, he did that repeatedly. When I came on board permanently, there was a permanent receptionist that he had, a beautiful redhead young lady, and she was his permanent receptionist. And, you know, he kind of really was so, br he was brutal with her, you know, and uh, I just, I saw how he treated her and I just, I was appalled. I think that's why I initially stayed with him the time that I did stay initially, because I normally wouldn't have stayed working with an attorney of his nature longer than a day. I was able to take a lunch break and go on an interview and come back and quit and let him know, say goodbye in every language I could think of. But he was this young lady. She was such a beautiful young lady. She was very nice, gentle, but he treated her so, I saw how he was treating her so bad. Initially, that's what made me stay because I'm like a mother. I got a mother nature. And I was like really trying to protect her a little bit, 
And then when I saw that he just wouldn't let up and that's just how he was, I said, you know, she wanted out and she didn't know how to get out. And I kind of coached her through getting out of his office, you know, with her paycheck because he was very notorious at blaming the employee for negligence and then simply not paying them. And I told her, I said, just hang in there, you know, and I helped her get out of there where she actually got her paycheck and was able to leave peacefully out of his office. Had you noticed that nature about him when you were there in 92, or did he seem to have got worse by 93? I didn't really notice it in 92. Uh, For some reason, I did not. I think maybe I might have only been with him a few weeks or so, not really that long, because it was a temporary spot. Like maybe I was just filling in for someone. I'm not, I can't really remember but I know it was temporary the first time. I didn't really notice his nature until uh, being hired. Now I'm permanent and I'm seeing, you know, the real deal, you know, as far as the makeup of his office. I'm just going to read out a quote from your book. You say, once Mr. Rothman arrived at the office, his instant presence would ruin what was up to that moment a quiet atmosphere. His arrival would immediately create a disturbing and hostile atmosphere of yelling, disgust, and anger. I never saw him treat anyone with respect. You say that he even spoke down to his fellow attorneys. And then you say Mr. Rothman ran his office like a concentration camp. His goal was always to inflict pain, humiliate, and render you worthless so he could feel more superior. So could you just give us a couple of examples of the ways in which he would treat his staff that made you describe him in in those vivid terms? Mainly how he treated the receptionist. He was brutal with her. Like he would call before he came in. He, He always would call and it always seemed like he was calling just to see if the coast was clear. And her job was to, you know, let him know everything is fine and you know, and then then he would come in. He never came in without calling to see, you know, I, it always felt like he was just, you know, <laughs> seeing if the coast was clear. So she would assure him and then he'd come in. But as soon as he came in, it was just he would attack her mostly. He was the hardest on the receptionist the most. But I did notice that he was like that even with the fellow attorneys. I noticed that there we had a lady and a man he was more brutal with the lady. If for some reason it was a, uh, it was the women that he was really hard on. You know, we had a lady attorney and there was sometimes he treated her just like he would treat the receptionist, really complain. And he was the type that if you made one little mistake, he would yell directly in your face and you would be able to feel spit coming from his mouth because he'd be right there in your face. You know, and he was just brutal. You know, I think the only reason why I didn't really get too much of that. And I mean, I've had I've I've had I had some run ins with him, you know, where he yelled at me. But for the most part, he was playing it pretty cool with me because, like I said, he had a huge turnover of secretaries. And he was I believe he was at the place where, you know, they just you know, the agencies got to the place where they were no longer willing to even place secretaries with him and without him paying them up front. And I never saw that. I never seen where you were required to pay up front before the agency would even trust 
sending you an employee, but that's how they even had to do him because of the way he was doing them. There's actually another quote in your book where you say, when he was in the midst of a full-fledged tantrum, it appeared as if he was going to physically attack you at any moment. I mean, that sounds like a really frightening environment to work in. Were you ever, were you actually ever frightened that he was going to attack you? You know, because I was good, I didn't give him much to come at to attack me with. His little thing is one little flaw would set him off. And I was, you know, my work quality was really superior. I didn't believe in really making mistakes. And if, if I did make a mistake, I'm not going to argue. I'll, you know, just point it out and I'll change it. I didn't give him reason to go off on me like that. And I kind of felt like he was kind of uh, being careful with me at the same time. He didn't want to lose me because I was good. When you have a good, you know, someone who know what they're doing and they're good at what they do, you kind of walk a little different with that person because I didn't have to put up with all of that. I, I could have left and found me another job the next day. So I didn't have to put up with it either. You say he had a reputation for stiffing people, refusing to pay his bills. And so there were a large volume of calls which used to come into the office from irate creditors that one actually rang the office and said that they were going to drop a dime on him. So for those of us who are not American, can you just explain what that means? What does it mean to drop a dime on someone? Obviously, they had something on him <laughs> and he owed them money and they threatened him. And he did make sure that that bill got paid. That one did get paid because we stopped receiving. Uh, uh, me and the receptionists were really, you know, because like I said, I, I, you know, I was really mothering her. So she was really confiding a lot of things with me. I, I knew pretty much what was going on just by uh, me and her conversating. Um, but the stiffing part, as far as him stiffing people, I saw him do that. Once she finally left and I got her out of there, she was got her paycheck and was gone. Now he had to replace her with other uh, receptionists. We went through a myriad of, of receptionists and some of them were, they were competent. One lady, I remember he frustrated her so bad. She went to lunch and had to go have a drink. She had to go have a drink at lunch and she came back. And he, I guess maybe he smelt the alcohol and he fired her and blamed the agency. Well, he owed the agency. She was with us for like three weeks. He owed the agency three weeks. And he used that one incident of flustering her so bad that the lady had to go and, and calm her nerves and have a drink. Now she comes back and he fires her and then didn't pay the agency for her three week service. That was kind of crazy. Yeah. And I watched him do that repeatedly. I always knew when the receptionist came in, I would give it one or two weeks. I said, he's going to find a reason to complain to the agency about that, uh, about the reception. And then he simply wasn't going to, you know, say that he needed to pay them. I literally watched him do that several times. Well, in fact, when you worked for him in 92, he was in Sunset Boulevard. And when you worked for him again, when you came back in 93, he'd relocated to Century City. Right. And you actually found out that in the interim, he had declared bankruptcy and left his old office owing a huge amount of money. Is that right? Right. He Well, I remember when he interviewed me in 92, he told me the secretary, his secretary had left 
but she came back and 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 robbed the office and that he was filing charges. He was suing the building because uh, uh, of her being able to come back in his office, but he was also owing the building a lot of money. That was his normal thing of finding one little thing to get out of paying the debt. Well, I know that most legal secretaries are not the type that's gonna come and rip you off. You know, we come into, you know, we're professionals, but when I worked for him in 93 and saw his pattern of not paying people, you know, not paying people. Then it made sense to me. I said, she probably came and ripped him off. He probably owed her some money because that's not normal for a legal secretary to come and rip attorney off. It's normal. You don't pay. If you didn't pay her now, you know, you've got a disgruntled employee and it's no telling what that person might do. I didn't put it together the first time, but the second time that I worked for him, I said, now this makes sense to me. When you come back in summer 93, this is when Mr. Rothman is dealing with Evan Chandler, who is the father of Jordan Chandler. And you actually say in the book that you believe it's possible that the reason Evan Chandler sought Barry Rothman out is because he was so unethical and he was looking for a lawyer who was willing to bend or break the rules. Of course, Evan Chandler is later recorded making a number of comments about Barry Rothman, about how he deliberately chose a devious right. uh, lawyer who was cruel and uh, how the lawyer, all he wants to do is humiliate as many people as he can. Now, in the beginning, the interesting thing about your story, I think, is that you're watching the whole thing unfold, but as it's happening, you don't know that it's about potential molestation allegations. So initially you believe it's a custody case. What do you remember about the very early days of Evan Chandler and his involvement with Barry Rothman? Initially, just like you said, it, it was a custody issue. They went through a lot of back and forth when Evan wanted uh, custody of Jordy from the wife. He wanted him longer than a weekend. He wanted him for a week. And June, she wasn't agreeable or she was cautious. Maybe she knew he was up to something, but um, she didn't agree initially. And I remember they had to go back and forth negotiating. You know, uh, he wanted her to sign something, but it was for uh, him to just have uh, Jordy for one week. And then she eventually agreed to let him have Jordy for one week. But when he got Jordy, he did not return him. He refused to return him at that point. And that's when I started noticing, you know, Jordy coming to the office. Uh, he would call Rothman's office almost daily. My antennas went up even about that because, you know, usually when someone would call, if Rothman was standing at my desk, he would just pick up the phone and say, I'll call you back or let me get to my office. But whenever Chandler would call, I noticed his whole demeanor was different. He would say, put him on hold. His office was all the way at the other end. He would walk all the way to the other end, go in his office, shut the door. And that's how he would take only Chandler's calls. That's it. Everybody else, he, you know, he was more casual with uh, receiving their calls or sometimes he'd even pick up the phone right at my desk and talk to them, you know. But when it came to Chandler, he did that different. Now, when was the first time you remember Michael Jackson coming up 
in relation to the case? Was it when the stipulation was being bandied about that they wanted June to sign, which said that she would not allow Michael Jackson contact with the son? When was the first time you remember thinking, oh, hang on, this is something to do with Michael Jackson? I really think that I didn't really realize it until when he did not return Jordy to June. See, in the stipulation, I think he didn't mention Michael's name. He said an adult male, uh, he didn't want him to have contact, something about not having contact with an adult male. I don't think he mentioned his name, but when she filed the uh, ex-party hearing and they had to respond, they wanted to put in a, a declaration to respond to it. That's where Michael's name, I, I recall, that's where I saw for the first time Michael Jackson's name, because when I saw the name, I remember I he never told me that this case had anything to do with Michael Jackson, not initially. And that's unusual because you usually let your, when you're dealing with a high profile anything, you usually tell your staff because there's a you know, a higher level of, of uh, um, confidentiality that goes along with that. So you want your staff to know, let's be careful with this. This is highly confidential. This is a, a movie star. This is the president of the, you know, you usually let the people know so that, you know, we're all on the same page as far as confidentiality. Well, I didn't know that that case involved Michael until I'm typing the actual declaration that had his name in it now. And I remember going to the lady uh, attorney. I used to go to her and ask her questions because, like I said, he was real brutal with her. She didn't owe him any you know, loyalty or anything. She's just working a job. And I remember asking her, I said, is this the Michael Jackson? And she told me yes. And I remember saying, wow, this is really interesting. He didn't say two words to me about it. I had to, this is how I had to find out. Do you think Rothman was a misogynist, by the way? Because you, you mentioned the brutal way that he treated the receptionist and how he was far more brutal with the female attorney than the male attorney. Did you get the impression that he had a problem with women? I think he had a big problem with women. He wasn't married. You know, the only one that would call, the only female that I can remember that would call was his housekeeper. I don't remember family calling him. And I was later told he had a twin brother. I don't remember the brother ever calling. <laughs> usually we get family. Usually, you know, you get family calling, you know, calling in to, and, and in his case, no, he just, the only people that he seemed to be interacting with on a daily basis were employees that he was, you know, felt like he could treat any kind of way. He was a lot more brutal with the women, yes, in answer to your question. And it sounds like he maybe was not a very popular or was maybe a, a lonely person anyway. So you say that he never seemed to have family or friends calling. No, he didn't. He just had the only one that would call was his uh, housekeeper and seemed like bill collectors. Evan Chandler would call him daily. But other than that, it, it just seemed like it was just people that he interacted with business-wise as opposed to family. Now, you make a point to say in the book, I do not personally know Michael Jackson, and I do not know anyone who knows him. When you're setting out your reasons for writing the book, you're making clear that it's not because of any relationship with Michael Jackson. But what was your attitude towards Michael Jackson at the time? Were you a fan or were you just indifferent? What was... What did you think of him? I've always admired his talent. 
I wouldn't say I was a fan. I had a daughter who adored him. <laughs> and so my uh, admiration for Michael at that point was just my daughter just simply adored him and she loved him, loved all his music. So I heard his, I was always hearing his music because she was always playing it, but not really a fan. I think at that time in my life, I was not into secular music. I was, uh, I've been a gospel singer for a long time. I've been in the gospel realm for a long time. So most of my admiration was um, mainly towards gospel artists. But Michael Jackson had a beautiful skill. Uh, one of the songs that he made, man, I loved the song. I loved his songwriting because I too am a songwriter. I think I admired him more on a songwriter note especially when he did Man in the Mirror. I thought that was the most beautiful song ever. And it sounded like a gospel uh, uh, song to me. And so I admire him. You know, he's from my generation. I grew up, you know, hearing uh, the Jackson Fives and admiring all the success. So I had admiration for them, the group, the whole group as a whole, watching his transition. And so it was mainly from that, not from a fan uh, standpoint of view, because like I said, at that, po at that point in my life, I was uh, mainly admiring gospel artists that were coming up through that time. Now, you touched on what you refer to in the book as the unusual secrecy that Rothman had about the Chandler case. There's something that you say in the book in particular, which was interesting to me, which was that Chandler would sometimes call the office between three and five times a day. And you say, I thought it was odd that after their many conversations, there were never any memos to file. Is that something that you would routinely do as a legal secretary? You would expect that if a client is calling the attorney, there would be notes that would need to be taken and filed, you would be ordinarily required to keep a record of those kind of communications. If not memos, I mean, you know, every attorney is different how they run their office, but the least there should have been documentation of calls because for billing purposes, meetings, you know, and that's where they articulate uh, what the call was about. That's where they would articulate what the meeting was about. You know, because now you're building, a, now you're, you're, you're keeping a track of our, uh, your contact with the client, your time with the client for billing purposes. And that part wasn't even there either. We never did. I, I don't recall ever doing bills for any of the uh, contact, any phone calls that he had with Chandler. There was no billing attached to that either. And that part was more particular for me than anything else. If he didn't want to you know, do memos to the file that, you know, like I said, especially sole practitioners, you know, they they have their own style sometimes, but not to have any type of uh, record of phone calls for billing purposes, meetings for billing purposes. That was the part that was mainly unusual. And in the book, you describe how you find Rothman's behavior on this one case so highly unusual and suspicious that you do something miraculous, which is you start taking contemporaneous notes of everything that's happening in your diary. Do you remember at what moment it was or what incident it was that made you think something is really funny here? I need to start keeping a record. I remember uh, when Anthony Pelicana last came to the office and he went in to the meeting with Rothman 
he stormed out of the meeting and he said, that's extortion. And he said, shoot your best shot. That was it right there. <laughs> he said he was furious. I had seen faxes going back and forth uh, where they were negotiating. You know, they were negotiating. Um, they were asking for money for a movie deal. Chandler was asking for $20 million to make a movie. There was no mention about impropriety. All Chandler was saying was that Michael had stolen his affection from him, that he was not wanting to spend time with him anymore. And he said uh, he wanted the money to make the movie so him and his son could work together on the movie. I remember seeing that. I remember seeing that going back and forth. I remember Pelicana, uh, I remember their response to that was, we'll give you something like 350000 that'll go towards that. And his response was, so that you and your son can reestablish, you know, your father and son relationship working together on the movie. That's all they offered. That's all that they were willing to offer towards the $20 million. But at that time, the only thing that uh, he was saying was that he's stolen my son's affection. He's taken my son. My son don't want to spend time with me no more. But uh, as quiet as it was kept, I later found out he wasn't spending that much time with his son anyway until he found out that his son was hanging out with Michael Jackson. So, yeah, just to go over some of the detail, uh, I think in your book, what you say is that Evan Chandler, through Barry Rothman, was trying to get Michael Jackson to pay for a four movie script writing deal where he would be paid $5 million per script for four scripts. And that Michael Jackson, through his attorney, Burt Fields, and through Anthony Pelicano, who was the defense investigator, was saying, no, we're not going to do that. But we might be prepared to offer 350000 for you and your son to spend some time working together on one movie script. Have I understood that all correctly? You're saying it more accurately. <laughs> I'm summarizing based on my memory of it, but you're, I think you're saying it more accurately. If you're saying it as I wrote it, that, that was from a more accurate memory <laughs> and documentation at the time. So yeah, that sounds accurate. That's as you wrote it in the book. And you describe in the book how your desk at Rothman's office was at the back of the room which overlooked the conference room. So from your vantage point, you could actually see all of the various meetings taking place. So you witness meetings between Barry Rothman and Evan Chandler. You witness meetings between Rothman and Pelicano. And you also see Jordan Chandler's mother and her husband, June and Dave, coming into the office to meet with Evan and Rothman. What do you remember about those meetings where June and Dave Schwartz were present. What was their demeanor like? Prior to that, she was at odds with Evan Chandler. They were fighting over the custody and, you know, and she just was not agreeing with nothing that he was trying to say at the time. But then after the case uh, became public, was made public that they were going after him, now they were coming in and meeting behind closed doors, almost like they were a part of it some kind of way. But I know initially they were not some kind of, you know, he must have convinced her to come on board. And it appeared at that point that they were all working together now. 
whereas before she was at great odds with him. Just so for the listeners, we've got the chronology right. This negotiation goes back and forth where Evan Chandler wants a 20 million movie deal. Michael Jackson's team come back and offer 350,000. Pelicano comes in for a meeting with Rothman, and that is when he storms out of the office, shouting, that's extortion. And that's the point at which you decide it's time for you to start keeping notes about what's happening. Yeah, then it started. Um, well, well, let me, I can take it back to even when he was trying to get custody. My antennas was up then. I'm like, I was feeling in my heart that, you know, he's asking for him for a week and they're signing documents, but I kind of didn't think it was going to go like that. So my antennas actually was up then once they started with the custody battle really was had ensued at that point. And so my antennas was up at that point. The other thing that triggered me to start keeping notes is I typed the letter to the doctor. I remember typed to Abrams. I typed, I remember typing the letter to the doctor where he was querying the doctor and he was telling the doctor that, you know, do you think it's something suspicious? You know, a 36 year old male adult is hanging with a 13 year old, you know, he didn't mention his name at, that's why I said he didn't mention the name. He was just characterizing him as a 36 year old male. I remember typing that letter I remember when the response came back then, we only had fax machines. So everything that came into the office had to come through via fax or mail, you know, so, but fax was the quickest way to communicate. So I remember when the doctor responded to that and the doctor uh, basically told him that he couldn't conclude anything without talking to the 13 year old. And that was it. And he said, if he want, you know, further information, he just, they would have to schedule a meeting, something to that effect. But I remember that was, you know, I'm like, well, what's this all about? You know, and I didn't have the name at the time, (laughs) even though it was, you know, peculiar to me, it wasn't like, you know, where I, I just had to know what that was all about. It wasn't until they finally put the name there and the declaration was going to the court telling the court, trying to justify the son not being returned. But that even struck another chord with me because he never said anything about that letter to the court, that declaration to the court, never said anything about him having uh, suspicions of impropriety. Because had he said that in that declaration, that judge would have instantly, for the protection of the child, would have issued some kind of order right away just to protect the child first, investigate later. He didn't say nothing uh, to the judge about that. So we're all in the office trying to figure out, you know, just kind of, you know, that's the excitement of the legal field. You don't know how it's going to go, you know, and we're we're asking for one thing. We're trying to figure out, you know, rooting to see, well, is he going to win? Is he going to win on this? And you know, and he didn't win. The court immediately told him to immediately return the custody of the boy back to the mom. Then I, you know, I was noting then because I'm, I'm like saying to myself, I said he's not going to do this. You know, I, I said, or I didn't believe he was going to do it. I didn't believe he was going to obey the court order and do what the court had asked him to do, and that would have been returning the son. You know, it was like a waiting game until we got the the news that he had accused Michael of child molestation. 
Well, then that letter that went out to Abrams, that all fell into place when uh, the order of him returning the child back and he I already knew he wasn't going to do it. I was curious to find out how was he going to not do it, though. And then when that when that news break came that they were charging Michael, I was in a state of shock. I could not believe that he had just charged Michael Jackson, you know, when he hadn't put that, I hadn't seen that no place else in none of the writing, none of the faxes, none of the negotiation of money, you know, that was all behind a movie. It had nothing to do with child molestation or improprieties. So that's why it was a shock when I saw it. And I just sat back, I said, no, they didn't just do this. You know, that came out of nowhere. And it was very shocking. I knew he was going to do something other than return the child. So if I can just recap, for the sake of the listeners, I'm going to be assuming there's some listeners that are not intimately acquainted with these allegations. So Evan Chandler has a son called Jordan Chandler. And Jordan Chandler, through his mother and stepfather, June and Dave Schwartz, meets Michael Jackson and befriends Michael Jackson. He starts spending time with the Schwartz family and then also starts spending time with Evan Chandler, also as, uh, as, as Jordan's father. Right. And then at some point, this negotiation starts where Evan Chandler is sending messages through your employer, Barry Rothman, trying to get Michael Jackson to give him a $20 million movie deal. Right. And Michael Jackson is saying, I don't want to do that. I might be prepared to invest a far smaller amount of money in a movie project, but not 20 million. Amidst all of this, you are asked as Mr. Rothman's legal secretary to send a letter to a psychologist called Dr. Abrams, in which you pose a hypothetical question about if a man is um, hanging around with a kid, would there be a reasonable suspicion of molestation happening? Words to that effect. And the doctor writes back and says, I can't give any opinion without interviewing the kid. Then the custody dispute is going on with Evan and June. And Evan asks for one week's custody of Jordan. June hands Jordan over and then Evan breaches the agreement and doesn't return Jordan to his mother's custody. June gets an ex-party hearing with the court and says, my husband has breached our custody agreement and he's not returned my son to my custody. Evan files a document with the court, which you as Rothman's legal secretary are involved with putting together, where he says why Jordan should not be returned to his mother's custody. And in that document, he does not say anything to suggest that Michael Jackson has molested his son. Have I got that all right? That is correct. And so the judge rules against Evan and in favor of June and orders that Jordan Chandler be returned to June immediately, at which time Evan Chandler suddenly instigates a process which results in Michael Jackson being placed under investigation by the police for child molestation, having previously not made any mention of that in any of the documents that you were involved in compiling, including the document he's just written to the court hours earlier, explaining why he should retain custody. That's correct. Absolutely correct. At some point, very shortly before this happens, you have your first meeting with Jordan Chandler, 
which is an accidental meeting where you walk into Rothman's office and you actually, in the book, you describe how Mr. Rothman liked you to check in with him every night before you left the office. So can you just tell that story about this encounter that you have with Jordan Chandler? I was leaving. I was getting preparing to leave the office and I was under the mandate of, you know, I had to check in before I uh, left the office. But I was also under to not before I entered the office. And I usually didn't give him reasons to blow up at me because I pretty much learned how to follow his rules. But I think I was a little upset with I think maybe he ticked me off or something he did that made me just you know, that was my revenge was like, I'm checking in, I'm being obedient by checking in, but I didn't knock. <laughs> I just opened up the door. When I opened up the door, I saw Jordy Chandler sitting at one, he was at one end, Rothman was sitting at his desk. But when I opened up the door, we all looked startled because we did not know that Jordy Chandler was in his office. I even asked the receptionist later, I said, did you know that little that, that he was here. And she even told me she didn't know. And I said, well, how did he get past her into his office to the place where none of us knew he was there? And I wouldn't have known had I not opened up the door. So when I opened up the door, I remember Jordy kind of had a little puzzled look on his face, looking at me in a puzzled way. Uh, Robin just blew up, you know, don't be knocking at this, you know, he went off about that. And I said, I said, fine. I said, I'm just letting you know I'm leaving. You know, I just was letting them know that my reason was to tell them I'm leaving. But I just remember walking away like, what was that all about? You know, that was another incident that led to a question mark. And I even asked the receptionist and she told me she didn't even know that Jordy Chandler was in his office. So there's a couple of things that leap out there. The first is that Jordan is there, but Evan is not there. So it's just Jordan and Rothman sitting in the office. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Just Rothman and Jordy Chandler. And he appears to have snuck Jordan in somehow. So Jordan has been sort of smuggled into the office in a way that none of the staff even know that he's there. It appeared like he wanted no one to know that he was there. Because like I said, the receptionist didn't even know he was there. Now, in the movie Square One, where you were interviewed, you actually described that incident. You said it looked to you like a coaching session. So what was it about that incident that day that made you think it looked like a coaching session? Well, normally, whenever an attorney is, when they're ready to go to trial or go to court, it's their normal procedure to bring the client in and not coach them, but brief them. It's normal. That's a normal procedure for an attorney to do is to coach a client just before you go in. So when I say that it looked like that, I'm used to attorneys doing that. You're getting ready to go to court. You know, the client comes in, you want, they're getting ready to be cross-examined or whatever. You know, the attorney does coach them in terms of what to and what not to say. That's normal. That just looks looked to me like a normal coaching session that attorneys normally do, you know, just before going to court with a client. And this was, you say in the book, just a few days before Jordan was then taken to Dr. Abrams and made his allegations of abuse, which instigated the police investigation, which led to Evan Chandler retaining custody. 
I'm not sure the exact timing of it because now this was going on behind the scenes. I'm only telling you what I saw. And like I said, we were all waiting to see how he was going to handle that and very skeptical that he was going to actually hand the son over because he hadn't done anything he said he was going to do up until that point. I'm not sure of how the exact number of days. It seemed like that was the last incident that I recall seeing happen before the actual allegation hit. Now, can I just ask you a question about the diary? So you start noting these things down in the diary. Do you still have that diary today? I still have it today. Wow. Okay. I have all my diaries. <laughs> you mentioned in the book that you actually you learn of the allegations against Michael Jackson from a TV news bulletin, which flashes up on the screen while you're sitting in the office. Is that right? That's correct. Just talk me through that moment on your lunch break. This news bulletin pops up. What are your immediate thoughts and emotions when you see that news bulletin? It was a breaking news. I was sitting there eating my lunch, watching TV in the conference room. And when it came up, breaking news, and they announced that the investigation for child molestation against Michael Jackson. And I, I, I recall just sitting back in my chair in total disbelief, but at the same time, believing that this was the next ploy that they, that, that, you know, everything now added up now, everything that didn't make sense before is now making sense to me. I said, no. And I remember leaning back in my chair saying, no, they didn't just do this. I felt that uh, it was false from the very, very beginning, because now, although everything that I did prior, all the things I had seen and heard done the young man being in the office all of that now made sense to me you know that didn't make sense before and i knew in my heart of hearts that this was a false allegation from the very very beginning now was there anything in that news bulletin that explicitly linked these allegations to mr rothman and mr chandler or did you just it just intrinsically know that this was connected in some way I knew. I, I knew that Rothman had a client, had a previous client, a lady that was trying to get custody of her kid through a bitter divorce. And out of nowhere, they charged him with child molestation. So that was another element that I'm like, no, they, you know, like he did it again. My thing was he did it again. Not that he just did this for the first time. It took a moment to really collect all these thoughts and and put them all together, together. But initially, when they broke the news that Michael Jackson was being investigated for trauma, I knew in my heart of hearts that he had been framed, that this was all what they were leading up to. And this was the next ploy to keep Chandler from having to return his son back to the mom. One of the things you make clear in the book is that these discussions over the supposed movie deal were going on long before the molestation allegations were made. You say in the book that that gave Michael Jackson, had he been guilty, ample time to pay off the family and avoid this entire scenario. So you say in the book, it's my guess that if Michael Jackson were guilty of the allegations, he would have paid the amount requested. Instead, Michael Jackson conducted himself as one who was not only innocent, but disgusted at the mere allegation. 
one thing that somebody could say if they were trying to counter that is, well, hang on a minute, because he did go back with the $350,000 offer through Pelicano. So how would you respond to somebody who, who said that in response to you? Well, the $350,000 uh, counter was for a movie being made. That's different. If it was, uh, you know, if he was, if this negotiation was about molestation, that would have been different. I, I think that would have been a different approach. You know, he would approach it different, but he was only responding to investing in a movie being made. And that, you know, he didn't feel like that. His response was that he didn't feel like that he should have to pay $20 million, you know, for the whole project, but he was willing to contribute some money. And he made it very clear that it was just so that him and the father could reestablish their relationship. At that point, he wasn't talking molestation. He was only talking movie. So what you're saying is that in none of the documentation that you were involved in either drafting and sending or receiving, had there been any mention of molestation? There was no mention, but the, the letter that he queried the doctor, he said he was asking the doctor if only by association, not by accusation. He was only saying by associating, there's a 36-year-old man that, you know, is hanging out with a 13-year-old. So is it possible that there's some impropriety based on association? Not he, he, well, he didn't accuse it. He hadn't accused him at that point. So the doctor was only responding based on association, not accusation. I see. So the letter to the psychologist said, if you have a, an adult man who's spending a lot of time with a kid, what could this mean? As opposed to saying the kid has made allegations. Right. It didn't say that at all. Okay. It didn't say that at all. It just said association, like he's hanging out with a kid. But what he failed to tell the doctor was that he, he wasn't just hanging out with you know, pulling Jordy to, he was, Michael was lavishing the whole family. June was a very beautiful woman. Michael was not a father, hadn't been married. And there was a sense of family. It appeared like he was enjoying the sense of family, not just, it was nothing sinister to that relationship. It was very beautiful. He was lavishing the whole family. Now, when this story breaks, so you watch the TV news report, and very soon after, you say the office is being absolutely bombarded with phone calls from the media. So can you just talk us through what it was like to be in the office and the chaos that you were experiencing in the aftermath of that breaking news story? It was overwhelming. It, the phone rang constantly. By then, we had lost our receptionist, and he was now going through the myriad of receptionists, and we were going through the headache of that, you know, trying to keep a receptionist on board while the phone was just constantly, uh, reporters were hanging out, trying to, uh, that that was another reason why Rothman would call in. He, you know, reporters were hiding out in the parking lot trying to get a statement from him. They were looking for Chandler and uh, Jordy. They couldn't find them, though. They were looking for him, but you know, I'll never forget it. It was just overwhelming. I had never been in a position like that before where we were the center of the world, you know, trying to communicate, trying to contract, trying to locate, trying to get a statement. It was really crazy. 
it was crazy. They were calling us from all over the world, news media, from all every news media, and they were just trying to, you know, they would hide out in the parking lot. <laughs> it was it was crazy. You mentioned in the book that this is actually what leads to your second encounter with Jordan Chandler because Evan Chandler's home becomes swarmed by media and they therefore seek refuge at Mr. Rothman's office and actually spend the night in the conference room at Mr. Rothman's office. Correct. You describe in the book, the, the phrase that you use is that Evan seemed like a nervous wreck. And you say that it was on this night, the night after the story broke, when they came and spent the night in the office, that you heard Evan Chandler screaming at Barry Rothman, it's my ass that's on the line and in danger of going to prison. Now, that's another quote that you wrote down contemporaneously in your diary, is that right? Right. I'm sure that's in my diary. My desk was not close to Rothman's office, and that was, you know, when the media was calling, uh, trying to verify what I was saying, his, his counter was, well, she didn't hear anything. You know, my office was way... Yeah, but this was in the, they were all in the conference room, but I, my, my desk was right next to the conference room. If the door is open and if you're saying, if you're talking loudly, I can hear you from my desk. And that is what I heard Evan Chandler say. Evan Chandler looked like a, ner he was a nervous wreck. He really, really was. He was, I think he was a cigarette smoker. And if so, he was constantly smoking. I know Rothman was a smoker. But Evan Chandler just looked like a uh, Jordy Chandler was more calm and collective than Evan. As a matter of fact, I even saw Jordy kind of consoling his dad on one occasion, like, you know, telling him to calm down, you know. And uh, but I did actually hear him say that. And when he said that, I was really taken back by that. You know, I was like, that doesn't sound like the uh, comment that someone would make when you've just accused somebody of uh, impropriety. So why are you in danger of going to prison? Why would you even make a comment like that? Well, what did you interpret from that comment? What did you take it to mean? I knew from the very beginning that this was a false allegation. So I took that as a normal comment that someone would make who just did something they had no business doing. I wasn't shocked by the comment. I knew that the comment of Michael uh, being uh, molesting Jordan I knew when I heard that the very first time I heard that I knew it was false. I knew that it was he was framed. So when I heard that comment, it, that was that's what he's supposed to say if you just did something illegal. Now, when you say the very first time you heard it, you knew it was false. What do you mean by that? Because somebody listening might say, "Oh, well, it sounds like Geraldine had a preconceived notion about this without hearing the evidence or whatever." So, what do you mean? When you say the very first time you heard it, you knew it was false. When I first heard the breaking news that they were accusing Michael Jackson of child molestation, I knew that was false because I had just witnessed what they had just done to Michael, how they had framed it, how they set it up, how they planned it, how they plotted it, and how they, when the judge told them to return Jordy Chandler, and how they, I knew they weren't going to do it because Evan had, wasn't following any rules at that point. I knew that they were getting ready to do something other than comply. So when they came up with the breaking news, I was like, wow. I knew when I heard that, that that was false. 
That's what I mean. When I heard them say that they were accusing Michael Jackson of child, I knew that was false. I knew that now that was like the end result of everything that didn't, you know, that they had plotted and done prior to that. That was the end result. And so I knew that that accusation was false. So essentially, it was a combination of you being in the office, witnessing the demeanors of everybody involved, hearing the comments that everybody involved was making, seeing the way that the litigation had played out up to that point, that none of this to you made sense or added up to a case that was about child molestation, i.e. if this was about child molestation... Why has my employer just spent the last month negotiating over a movie deal and never mentioning anything about child molestation? So essentially, nothing made sense to you. Right. The only thing that made sense was when Pelicana stormed out of the office and said, that's extortion. And he told them to shoot their best shot. (laughs) And I think they did just what he told them to do. But at the same time, I believe Pelicana hit it on the head. He nailed it. He hit it on the head when he said extortion. Because I did witness them trying to get money out of Michael. I did witness uh, him getting the uh, custody of the child and not returning the child. I did, you know, I witnessed, you know, him telling the mom that, you know, I'm going to return him and he didn't. So based on what I had witnessed, I believe what I witnessed was the extortion plot. When he went to court, if he had even mentioned to the court that he had a suspicion of impropriety, sexual impropriety on Michael Jackson, that judge would have ordered them, he would have gotten an order right then and there to protect the child. He would have not been told by the judge to return the child forthwith. He wouldn't have been told that. And I believe the reason he didn't do it like that was because that was not their plan. When Michael filed a uh, counter, when he did file the counter extortion claim against Chandler, and I remember Rothman, uh, he wanted to schedule a meeting with Evan over the weekend. He did it over the weekend. He knew nobody would be there on the weekend. But I remember hearing him tell Evan, we have to make sure that we're saying the same thing, that our stories are the same. I remember hearing him tell Evan that on the telephone, he said he wanted to meet, wanted him to come in the office on that Saturday. He said, we got to make sure that our stories are the same. You know, if you're really being honest, you you know, yeah, attorneys do groom their clients in terms of making sure that they say the right thing, but he said it differently. I heard him say, we have to make sure that our stories are the same. I remember when I heard that, you know, I was hearing too much. And I'm basing it on what I did here, not what I'm just assuming, not what I'm speculating. Everything that I'm saying that I believe is based on what I did here with my own ears, saw with my own eyes. And I'm concluding based on that, that this was not a case of child molestation. This was a a clear cut case of extortion. Yes. So essentially you're, you're hearing various things that are adding up to a conclusion. So at one point when you hear the accuser shouting, it's my ass that's on the line here and I could be going to prison. That doesn't generally suggest that the person is telling the truth. Correct. At least to me, that's not a statement you make if you're innocent. 
Now, that night that the media descended on Evan Chandler's house and he and Jordan sought refuge at Mr. Rothman's office, you write in the book that you were ordered to stay late that night and work on some legal documents and you had some interactions with Jordan. What can you tell us about your interactions with Jordan and your impressions of him that night? He was not in the conference room. He kept walking in the area where I was at. Uh, like I said, I type over a hundred words a minute and he seemed to be intrigued with that. He was like, you know, at one point he was almost looking at me as I was typing and I got an opportunity to, you know, I was observing him the whole time. I just didn't make it obvious. I was kind of concerned. I was like, you know, this little boy just got caught in the crossfire with all of this, but he was so incredibly calm. You know, he was playing with the, uh, something like a little music device. Maybe he had the earphones in his ear and he just seemed so incredibly calm, cool, collective. He even said something to me. Uh, what did he say? I think he even asked me how fast I typed and I told him and I think I asked him how was he, you know, I took advantage of that to just say a little something back to him. I was witnessing a young man that was just totally calm, not even being bothered by what's going on. And then when Chandler uh, blurted out, you know, he was actually calming down Chandler, you know, telling him, dad, you know, something like dad, calm down, you know, or, you know, he was, he was the calm one. The father was a wreck. Yeah. I want to ask you something actually, because you mentioned in the book that through your legal career, you have had experience in the past of parents using their children in custody disputes and persuading them to tell lies in custody disputes and the various ways that parents can do this and that you've seen them do this. So could you just talk through your personal experience as a legal secretary who's worked on custody disputes, how parents can and do get their children to tell lies about these kind of allegations? From what I have experienced, because I actually worked for an attorney who worked for the court system for kids that were being taken away from their parents, you know, we have encountered situations where the parent was actually guilty. In this case, the parent was at, but because the child did not want to be separated from the parent, they were usually very reluctant in being truthful. It was a little different in a case like that. It was mostly cases where the child was trying to protect the parent. And I got a chance to see that, you know, even in situations where a parent is neglectful, that a child takes on the responsibility of protecting the parent. But in these cases, the parents were probably guilty, but the kid was still kind of do whatever it would take to protect that parent. We That one blew me away because I thought if a parent did something to a child to harm him, he would be the first one to blow the whistle. But in most of our cases, the kid was actually trying to protect the uh, parent. And I made that comment because I later found out that Chandler was possibly coaching him to protect him, not to protect him, meaning that he's going to prison, but like he's losing his career and the movie thing is the only, you know, he needed custody to convince him to go along with what he was plotting. And he had to have his agreement. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said what he said to the investigators that wasn't true. When I make that comment, I'm using my experience of working in a situation where I did see how kids can be cohorts 
into lying to protect the parent. In these cases, the parent was really guilty <laughs> and they still had a sense of, I got to protect my mom or my dad, you know? So essentially you never saw Evan Chandler saying to Jordan anything like, you, you need to help me out here. I'm, I'm in trouble. I need you to tell a lie. But you have experienced that in other cases and you are therefore alive to the reality that that can happen and does happen. Right. Correct. And I think I was just giving a case scenario. I think I wasn't speaking factually. I was presuming, well, how do I, you know, I wanted to deal with that question. How does a parent get a kid to lie? First, you got to get custody of that child. Well, he did that. He lied to do that. You know, now how do you convince a child? So I think I was presenting case scenarios on how he went about, you know, getting uh, Jordy Chandler to tell the lie. And from what I'm hearing some uh, years down the line, he's never told that lie again. And, you know, so, you know, I kind of have that to corroborate with my uh, scenario that he was young. He was 13 years, no telling what he told. He could have said, we're going to be rich. You know, we do this and you just go along. Let's get this money, make this movie. We're going to be rich. I, I'm not saying it factually. I'm presuming when I say that. Now, during the days and weeks after this story breaks, a couple of things happen. Evan Chandler is attacked in the street, and also Mr. Rothman's office receives a bomb threat. So were you frightened for your own safety being in the middle of this huge controversial case? I was not. I don't know. Maybe I didn't really know how <laughs> perilous it could have been, but I did go and talk to Anthony Pelicana while I was still working for the attorney. My mother prompted me to do that because my mother was watching the news. Well, I'll put it like this. All of my suspicions, all the things that were going on in the office where I just, I had to talk to somebody. I was like, you know, other than journaling it, I used to come home and I used to tell my mom, my mother knew everything that I was going through in the office because I would tell her. And so when the case hit and I told her, I said, mama, they just, I told my mom, I said, mom, they just did this. So my mother, because she was watching the news all the time, she was at home watching the news. She knew who Anthony Pelicano was. He was the de defense investigator. She picked up the phone and call Anthony Pelicana. And she said, you need to talk to my daughter. She works with the attorney that just framed Michael. And I think you need to talk to her. So I probably never would have done that. I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. I wouldn't have even thought to have done that. But my mother had the most incredible courage in the world. She was not, she was a courageous woman. And so I kind of did it because she coached me to do it talked me into doing it. And I said, okay, mama, she actually went with me to the meeting. I wasn't afraid to do that, you know, because I had my mom, my mother was right there, you know, and lending me her courage at the time. <laughs> now, did you go and speak to Mr. Pelicano before or after the extortion complaint had been filed by Michael Jackson's team against Rothman and Chandler? It was after... Okay, so let's deal with that first then. So after Jordan is taken to Abrams, where he makes allegations, the law in California 
demands that Dr. Abrams reports that to the authorities, that triggers a police investigation, which seems to have been something that Evan Chandler didn't actually want because it complicates the entire negotiation process. But what it also does is it triggers Michael Jackson's team, his legal team, to file a formal complaint with the authorities that he has been the victim of extortion. And that complaint essentially says, a guy approached me saying he wanted $20 million for a movie. I refused to pay it. And then when I refused to pay it, he suddenly accused me of molesting his son. So when that extortion allegation is made to the authorities and becomes formal, can you just talk me through the reaction of Mr. Rothman and Evan Chandler that you observed? That's when they kind of became unglued. I don't think they expected the counter. I don't think they expected that. That was when I heard him tell Chandler, we have to meet. The investigator was now calling them to come to investigate it. That's when they were not being as cautious about behind doors conversations. And that's when I believe I heard Chandler make that comment. It's my ass in danger of going to prison. That was all afterwards, after Michael had countered, was had countered because the investigator called and he wanted to talk to them now on the extortion uh, charge. I think that's what really kind of, uh, when uh, Chandler and uh, Jordy came, they actually came and stayed in my attorney's office three to four days. They literally hung out. They didn't go anywhere. They couldn't. The media were trying to find them, and they didn't want to make any comment to the media. They didn't want to be found uh, until they got their story together, until they got their strategies together, until they were all on one accord. That's what Chandler said. I mean, that's what Rothman said. So, you know, they literally hung out in my attorney's office for like three to four days. They didn't even leave during that time. I believe they came unglued when they uh, countered them with that extortion charge. You also recount at some point around that time, I just want to try and place it, hearing Evan Chandler make a sort of a despairing exclamation that he almost had a $20 million deal and it somehow got away from him. So what do you remember about when that comment was made and and what he said? All of this was after the uh, counter allegation for extortion, because like I said, they weren't being as careful now. <laughs> he was just blurting stuff out. He was right there in the office. They were in our office for like three to four days, and he just was blurting. Like I said, he, he was unglued. They weren't being careful. He was just blurting stuff out. You know, these are comments that I heard after I believe that they came with the counter allegation. As we sit here today, do you remember the comment about the 20 million deal? Or is that just something that you have in your diary? I believe that's accurately what he said. I wouldn't have presumed he said that. But you don't remember it now. I would have to check my diary on that one. I believe everything I heard him say that I thought was really peculiar, those are the comments that I I jotted in my book, in my diary. The amazing thing about this whole story is that you have a contemporaneous note. And I mean, within a legal setting, you know, I know as a journalist that if you have a contemporaneous note, that is one of the most important pieces of evidence you can present in a courtroom. If you can say, I wrote something down as it was happening, I have a contemporaneous note, it's very strong evidence. So 
it's incredible that you had the forethought to start writing all this down. I knew legally, some people say, well, did you have this document? Did you? I said, come on, legally speaking, very unethical to have done that. And I probably could have been, he could have sued me had I accessed a document, but he couldn't stop me from writing, taking notes in my own diary. I knew I could do that. I knew I could memorialize what I was hearing, what I was seeing, and there was nothing he could do about that. But to take a document or you know, oh, I can pr- take a picture. You know, there is attorney-client privilege. And he could have came after me for everything if I had done it like that. To take notes in a diary, you can't You can't sue me for that one. You say in the book that if anybody ever needed it, you would be happy for this diary to be forensically tested and you, and it would demonstrate that everything was written at the time that it said it was written it's not been amended or edited in any way and you, and you would be willing to submit it to forensic testing. That's accurate. Nothing had everything that I put in that diary. It was like, uh, at that time I haven't added anything since then and nothing has been taken out of there either. You know, so there is a way that they could tell that, you know, this is the original ink <laughs> 30 years ago and it hasn't been altered. You know, basically what I'm saying is that, it would pass that test because I, I was writing it as I was going along. I was taking notes as I was as it was happening. So I suppose if somebody wanted to try and discredit you and we've ruled out that you fabricated the diary after the fact, then all that would be left would be for them to say, well, you must have been a crazy Michael Jackson fan who was just making up the notes because you wanted to provide him with a defense. So what would you say in response to that? Well, at the time, I was not a crazy Michael Jackson fan. At the time, I was a gospel singer. I was in the studio recording my own original music. My admiration was to be a a gospel singer. I was uh, pattering after some of the great gospel singers. And like I said, I admired Michael, grew up with the Jackson 5's genre, being famous and everything. But You know, my direction, my musical direction was in a different uh, arena. It was in the gospel music industry, not not secular music. And there were a lot of secular artists that were wonderful, you know, and really good. But, you know, my aspiration was to be a gospel singer, songwriter. I couldn't have been that huge, crazy jazz. I couldn't have been because, you know, my like I said, my my uh, uh, music was in a different uh, arena. And I, I always, I, I think I, I think you could tell from the writing of my book that I'm a Christian and that I follow God. And one of the things that you learn is about not having idols, not worshiping people, you know. And I have met a lot of uh, Michael's fans who just worship him and adore him. And I've corrected a lot of them. I've told them, I said, you know, when I encountered him, I said, there's nothing wrong with giving honor to people and admiring people. I said, but when you start worshiping people, I've corrected a lot of Michael Jackson's fans and let them know that the ones you should be worshiping is the one who gave us Michael Jackson. And that was God. You know, so my my whole thing is just you'd be really going up a wrong tree trying to turn me into a a Michael Jackson fanatical fan who worshiped Michael because the only one that I worship and have been worshiping and adoring since I was 22 years old has been God. And that's it. And what does the Bible 
and God say about lying? About lying? Yeah. That the devil is the liar. That all lies come from the devil. You know, people who lie, that's not a God thing. When you when you're following the laws of God, you should be an honest person. I even use that just to even explain like what they did to Michael. That was a lie. But, you know, the Bible also teaches us that, you know, just because you follow God does not mean that you're not going to be subject to all kind of people lying, hating on you, that kind of thing. But it does say that, you know, God will always be with you and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. It made more sense to me that uh, he was uh, not a liar, that he was really an honest and a pure person, because what other reason would God have set somebody into that office? Had I not been working for that attorney, you never would have heard the truth. You never would have heard what I saw and what I witnessed and you know, you never would have. So it looks more like to me, like that Michael had God even on his side, that though he did go through some stuff and he went through some persecution that probably caused his demise. But look at the good that he was doing in, in the world. You know, I admire that more than I admire when I found and I didn't find that out until I wrote the book. I said, well, let me let me, you know, let people know who Michael really was, you know, the humanitarian. I couldn't even believe all the generosity and humanitarian work that he's done. I didn't find that out until I was doing my research to write the book. Now, then I really admired him when I said I saw that he was just really a good person trying to help people. And then I started meeting Michael's fans and everybody I met. I I met very few fanatics. I met people who was just simply inspired by Michael, inspired by his music, inspired by his love for nature, for man. And I just, you know, I said, this is how we supposed to be as Christians. All of us are supposed to be like that. You know, when I learned about what he had been doing and how he had been doing his life and the humanity, then I became an admirer of his, but is still not a fanatic. <laughs> now, is one of the commandments, thou shall not bear false witness, is that, am I remembering that right? Yes, that's still one of the commandments. Okay. Now, you run a ministry, you were saying earlier, is that right? Yes. What is a ministry? So you preach. Does that, is that what that means? I teach. I don't preach. I'm a teacher. I teach the Bible. I teach the Word of God. Uh, I work in the homeless community. I work in the largest homeless community in our nation, which is Skid Row. We don't just feed the homeless. We give them a church service where, with music, with worship and praise and worship. And, and we give them the same thing that everybody else gets, you know, and that is to ha- be a part of a church community where they can be inspired and they can be uplifted. We pray for them. And then after we finish with our service, we feed them and we feed them good food, home cooked meal. So essentially bearing false witness would be entirely at odds with the entire philosophy by which you live your life. I'm a firm believer that if you don't know anything else about God, go back to the Ten Commandments. So that's what I call cardinal. (laughs) Those are the cardinal rules. So I said, well, if you don't know nothing else about God, let's go and follow the cardinals. And that is one of the cardinals, correct? I think that's important to understand. So if you wrote something in your diary, 
there's no chance that you fabricated it. Per the Bible, what would be the consequence of you having fabricated that? What would be the consequence? Yeah. That's a good question. You know, what I think is, I think it would be a bigger consequence when you're fabricating and lying about a person and causing them demise. If I said something that was not absolutely accurate, but see, my motive was not to destroy that person. My motive is different. My motive is I believe in all my heart from everything that I experienced and heard and was there that Michael Jackson was framed. So I only came forward to vindicate him. I didn't come forward to destroy him. I didn't come forward to uh, uh, cause his demise. It's different when your motive is to destroy. The Bible calls that shedding innocent blood. So somebody could say, well, this point is not accurate because that's what the devil does to discredit you. He takes one little part of what you said and try and annihilate everything as being totally false. But the motive here is not, was not to destroy anybody. The motive here was to protect an innocent person. And I'm not saying that every little thing that I have said was accurate. It was based on what I was seeing, based on what I was hearing, based on what I presumed at that time. It hasn't proven false to me yet. You know, we're now 30 plus years down the line and it hasn't been proven that anything that I've said is false yet. And if someone comes and brings it to my attention, oh, you said this, Geraldine. Well, you might be right. I might have wrote it down. Maybe I assumed this part, but my motive was never to destroy anybody. That's when you have a problem with God. When you uh, mislead or you say something that's inaccurate, he goes to, why did you do it? Did you do it to destroy that person or did you do it to protect that person? If you said it to protect that person, then, you you know, we all misstate stuff. You're, you're a journalist. I know you've had people do that to you many a time. But are you a dishonest person? No, but we all have a tendency, you know, we could hear something wrong or, or get a wrong story and say something that's not accurate. They do it all the time on the news, as a matter of fact. They do it every day on the news, as a matter of fact. But uh, it goes to the motive of the person. Did I say that to destroy someone or was I trying to do something good and protect that person? Well, just to be clear, I'm not talking about accidentally writing something down slightly wrong, I'm talking about making it up. Because, of course, the flip side to it would be if you made something up to protect Michael Jackson, what you would be doing, in essence, is potentially making something up that would be discrediting a, an abuse victim. So I just want to get to the heart of your core belief system and how compatible it would be with those people on the internet who would suggest that you have fabricated the evidence that you present to clear Michael Jackson, or that you say suggests that Michael Jackson was framed. So to actually make up all of these quotes, that would not be something that would be compatible with your religious outlook. The other part is, I, the only reason I came for was to tell the truth. I was so not and still not a public person that goes public. That was so not in my core because I'm a songwriter. I'm the one that's in the background, usually. I never would have even went to the investigator had my mother not prompted me to do so, to come and tell him the truth. 
when Michael settled the case and they made him drop the extortion scheme, that's where all the truth was at. And I remember saying, I said, you know, they'll never know what really happened, you know? And I knew I was in a position to either walk away and no one would never know. I, you don't know how long, how many years I toiled with coming forth and telling the truth. I finally came forth and told the truth for one reason and one reason only. I said, I, I realized that if I don't say something, if I don't tell the truth and say what I saw and heard, they will never know what really happened. They'll never know. And I had an option to walk away and say nothing. I actually did. Right when I got through writing the book, I said, that's the only reason why I decided to write the book. I said, well, I could just put it in the book and they can pick and choose if they believe it or not. But at least I've done my part. My part is I've given them the information as I saw it and as I've given them what I believe is the truth. And it's up to them to believe it or not. Yeah, but I'm through, you know, I, I thought I, I thought I'd be through with it. But I didn't know that you write a book. You know, you couldn't have told me what happened after I released the book was going to happen. I wouldn't have wrote the book. <laughs> I would have opted out even then. But I was convinced in my spirit and in my soul that I was probably put there for a reason. I'm a, you know, I in my um, spiritual training, being a missionary is something that I was aspiring to do as well. And a missionary is someone who's given a, a, an assignment by God and you go and you do it. That's it. You go do it. You don't argue. You don't debate. You just do it. And I just felt like I was placed in that position and I was put in the position where either I do it, you know, do what God has placed. You know, it was to me, it was like a mission. But then when I stopped and I saw all the good that Michael had done, his whole entire life was just helping people. It made sense to me that God would not just leave him to be attacked like that and had no course of, uh, you know, helping him or saving him. And so I kind of I toiled for years. I went into the mission field even after I wrote the book. I put the book on the shelf. And my mother was just on me about it. But I said, no, Ma, I'm, I need to, God is calling me. I need to go do, you know, I was running. Really, I was running. But where I was commissioned, I was placed in uh, uh, Watts. Uh, the mission field that I went in that I was assigned to was Watts, California. And it was where there's a lot of drug dealers, a lot of gang bangers, kids, you know, riding bikes with guns. And I really do believe that that was the place that I was put there for one reason, to develop the courage. Because when I came out of that, and I was there for a year, when I came out of that mission field, I now had the courage. I wasn't afraid to put the book out. I wasn't afraid to tell the truth. I said, they probably won't believe me because I put, if you calculate, my book released in November of 2003, which was the same month that Tom Snedden came after Michael with the second allegation. So once again, here comes the media frenzy again. And they had put the press release out on my book. So the press release was out, not the book. The book wasn't out at the time, but the media was picking up on the press release and they were calling, They, I didn't even have an agent. They were calling my publisher like day and night, night and day. You know, we want to talk to Ms. Hughes. You know, I did, I was doing interviews almost every day. I just came to the conclusion that if I didn't put it out, 
the truth would never be told. You know, and if I could have found another way to have gotten it out, I would have done it. And I didn't even know at the time that writing a book would throw you out there. I thought you just write a book, put it out there. They read it. They believe it or not. You know, and that's it. I never knew the whirlwind that came when I put that book out. Had you told me that ahead of time, maybe I wouldn't have put the book out. (laughs) I too would have opted out. So I didn't go through all of this to protect Michael Jackson. I didn't go through all of this to lie on anybody. The only reason why I went on and came forth, put this book out, was to tell the truth. And that was it. I have no other motive. I have made, you know, other than the little money that I may have gotten from the book to help with my travel, because I never really, Michael's fans did initially. They were really, you know, trying to get me out there. And they, they did more than my publisher in terms of getting me, you know, putting me on tour, you know, to go speak at different places. But I really never really gained anything monetarily from doing this. The only reason why I did it was because I said, I realized that if I didn't say something, if I didn't put this information out here, it would have never been known. And that was it. I stood up for truth and that was it. So let's rewind a bit. Your mother calls Anthony Pelicano. You're still working for Barry Rothman, but you go and meet Mr. Pelicano. So just tell me about that meeting, where it happened, how it went, and what followed that initial meeting. His office was on Sunset. I think it was 90s, uh, Beverly Hills, just outside of Beverly Hills, West LA, I think. Um, that's where we went and met at his office. When we met, I gave him all the information that I had. He was really on top of everything, though. He Most of the information that I gave him, he pretty much already knew. I think I may have given him some a few things that he didn't know. He was very glad to hear that. Uh, and I did tell him my daughter loved uh, Michael Jackson. And he had a picture of Michael, an autographed picture of Michael on his wall. And when I told him that my daughter really loved Michael, he he took the picture off his wall, gave it to me and said, give this to your daughter. And the picture that he gave me is the picture that's on my book cover right now. Did Mr. Rothman know that you were meeting with Mr. Pelicano? No, of course he did not. (laughs) He probably would have. He probably would have shot me. (laughs) He was capable of violence. (laughs) What happened with Mr. Rothman? How did your employment, how long did it continue after that? And how did it end? I recall working for him all the way through the settlement process, because I remember that whole process completely. I think after they decided to settle and uh, the settlement was, I don't know if it was already signed, But I remember right after the settlement, right after they decided to settle, Chandler came into the office one day and he rushed into the office with Rothman. And then after he left out of that meeting, Rothman just came out and just said, oh, well, we no longer need your services. (laughs) We no longer. And there was no confrontation. There was no, uh, you know, that just came out of nowhere. I often, you know, I mean, I speculated. I said, maybe Chandler may have told Rothman, you know, you need to get rid of anybody that's been here too long in case investigations or whatever. I don't know. Maybe he came and told him that I did me. I don't know what prompted it. I just know that just out of nowhere, and it was after the settlement phase, 
that he just came and just released me from his employment that would no there was no reason or anything. Now, this is an important point from your book, because you say that after the extortion complaint was made by Michael Jackson's team, an announcement was made that Rothman was no longer representing Evan Chandler. However, after that announcement was made, the two of them remained in constant contact, and you said that you were experiencing something in the region of about four phone calls a day from Evan Chandler to Barry Rothman, even after he had supposedly stopped representing him. It sounds like you're saying that continued all the way through after Larry Feldman joined the case and filed the civil suit, and even all the way up to the settlement. Correct. He was still uh, in communication with him. He was still calling our office. He was still talking to him. It looked like he just couldn't stand the heat of being his attorney, but he was still in constant communication with him. And you actually say that during this period after Mr. Rothman stopped officially representing Evan Chandler, but they remained in communication, you actually overheard Mr. Rothman telling Mr. Chandler, we just have to stick to the plan. We cannot deviate from the plan. Is that right? That's correct. Now, Michael Jackson's team files this extortion complaint where they're alleging that Mr. Rothman and Mr. Chandler have uh, have executed an extortion plot. Did anybody from law enforcement ever contact you to ask you whether you had any evidence of an extortion plot? No, they didn't contact me. They contacted both of them. They wanted to talk to uh, both of them. And I think that it would have been a separate meeting and that's what prompted him to tell Chandler, we need to meet on a Saturday. We need to make sure we're saying, you know, our, we're saying the same thing. Uh, that's what prompted him to uh, meet with Chandler. No one contacted me. Like I said, I kind of think that's why they let me, he let me go even because I had witnessed the whole thing and it wasn't good to have me around anymore either, you know. Well, it doesn't sound like a very thorough police investigation to just ring up the two suspects and say, hey, did you do it? You would think that quite a sensible thing to do would be to contact people that would have been in the vicinity and may have witnessed the extortion plot being prepared and executed. So what's your opinion of the thoroughness or lack of thoroughness of the extortion investigation? They didn't really get a chance to do all of that. Once they decided to settle the case, that was what the judge ordered them to do was to drop their counterclaim. They had to drop that case. But the other thing is whenever I would interview with uh, some of the major networks, they all were calling Rothman and asking, you know, letting them know that they were going to interview me about the case and asking if he had a comment that he wanted to share or rebuttal. And they told him exactly what I was going to say, what I was saying most of them told me that Rothman's comment was, I didn't know anything. I wasn't privy to anything. That's what most of them were telling me that he was telling them that I didn't know anything. So if the investigator did come knocking, I'm quite sure he downplayed me knowing anything, you know, like she doesn't know anything. She wasn't in no meeting. She, I do my own this and I do, you know, the media people were telling me what he was telling them and he was making it seem like I knew nothing. Still, I mean, Evan Chandler is not a very reputable character, and he 
makes allegations that Michael Jackson has molested his son. The police crawl all over hundreds of witnesses. They even pull children into interviews and scream and shout at them and threaten them. They make up stories and say, we've got photographs of you naked. We've got photographs of Michael Jackson abusing you. Just admit it. It was a very aggressive, intrusive police investigation. Right. Michael Jackson goes to the authorities and says, this man has extorted me. And they don't even ask you a question. It doesn't seem particularly uh, enthusiastic, the extortion investigation. Well, you got to understand, they were... 98.5% were trying to prove him guilty at the time. What made sense didn't, even the courts were ruling against him on stuff that they should never have ruled against. So you got to understand the climate at the time was not to protect Michael Jackson, not to uh, find the search for the truth. They were too busy. The hype was for the lie not the truth. They were too busy reporting how he, you know, if he's convicted, you know, uh, this is the sale he's going to be, you know, you got to understand they weren't searching for truth at the time. They were making all their money embellishing the lie. I was just a little fly in 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 a big web of stuff. I actually did interviews where I said, I told them stuff, the same information I'm giving you right now. And when it aired, they took a soundbite of something that was so unimportant and made it seem like I didn't really have nothing to say. So you got, you're in the media, you know how that go. Maybe the public may not. I wouldn't have believed it had I not experienced it for myself. I was actually interviewing with uh, um, another young man, Purple uh, Carr. He was uh, one of the uh, spokespersons for Michael's family at the time. And he said something that was very insignificant. As a matter of fact, he probably said, you know, we support Geraldine Hughes and she's the author of the book Redemption. And, you know, and then they turned to me and I, you know, they asked me questions and I said, I answered questions that they had never even heard. But when they aired it, you couldn't even tell I was in the interview. (laughs) And I said, wow, this is really crazy. So, yeah. It wasn't a climate to vindicate Michael at the time. The climate may be more fair right now, but at that time, oh no, they were, it was, everybody was hauling crucify Michael Jackson. Are you suggesting then that the police were interested in appeasing the media and what would make the police look good in the eyes of the media was to go after Michael Jackson, not to investigate the extortion plot? No, it was the prosecutor that was trying to go after Michael Jackson. He was trying to prove that he was right, that Michael Jackson was a child molester because he spent millions of taxpayers' dollars trying to prove it. He put a, a cattle call out there. They sent investigators all over the country. They were digging up ex-employees of Michael's, not of me. They were trying to prove he was guilty. They weren't trying to prove he was innocent at the time. You know, they were convinced that he was guilty at the time. And and they went and talked to ex-disgruntled employees. They were not trying to prove Michael Jackson was innocent. They were pulling out all the stops everywhere they could. Even the police were coaching the children at the time to say things that weren't true. And then they finally got slapped 
you know, the court finally told them to stop doing this, you know, so no, you, what you're saying is a sensible question. It should be the answer to your question should be yes, or should be, you know, they should have went after or whatever have you, but that's the atrocity of what Michael Jackson went through with this case. It was nothing normal was taking place. It was just unorthodox. Everything was unorthodox. Every court decision that they handed down in this case while he was going through it was unprecedented. It wasn't there what happened. You know, that's why Michael had to go on and settle. He knew he wasn't getting a, a fair shake even in the court. So what do you do? You got somebody falsely accusing you. The court is not supporting you. The police is trying to interrogate people to say the prosecutor is putting out cattle calls to disgruntled employees who's trying to make money and will say anything. So what do you do in a case like that? Did Mr. Pelicano ever express an opinion to you about Michael Jackson's innocence or guilt? Oh, he sure did. He certainly did. When I first went to meet with him, it kind of established a rapport between uh, he and I. If I had questions, he, and he told me when I met with him the first time, if I had any questions that I could feel free to call him, and I did. But what he told me, I think he told me this in our first meeting, he wanted me to know that he not only believed Michael was innocent, I remember him telling me he's Italian and their family, you know, into family, children and, and, and their wife. And he said before he would even take the case on, he said he met with Jordy and his sister. He said he met them at the Century City. Uh, I think it was Michael's Century City uh, location. He said he asked them. Now, this is Pelicana telling me this directly. He said he asked them, he said, and I, I did it very gently, you know, was there anything inappropriate? Did Michael do anything inappropriate? Did he touch you in any kind of way? Did he do, is there anything that he did to you that was inappropriate? And, you know, he, he did it as he said, he did it very gently. He said, but they both told him no that Michael had not done anything inappropriate. He told me he never would have taken the case if they told him yes. That kind of developed a trust. You know, I trusted him at that point because I said, you know, this is somebody who's got some ethics, you know, got some morals. You know, he said he wouldn't have even have taken the case. So I said, you know, I, I and he was, you know, the time that I did communicate with him, he was just straight up. So yeah, he did solidify in my mind, at least, you know, and in my heart that he was convinced that Michael Jackson not only was he innocent, but he said he got it from the two children and got them to cooperate that Michael had not done anything inappropriate to them. And did he, in fact, express an opinion to you about why he quit the case? He sure did. I, I called him. I heard it on the news first. I heard that him and uh, uh, the attorney had quit. I called him and I said, you're quitting. I asked him, why was he quitting? And he was really upset. He said, because they were settling, he said, they were prepared to go to court and win. He said, I'll have nothing to do with a settlement. He said, he said we, we've done all this work and we've collected all this information that would have vindicated. He said, their approach was to go to court and win it, not to settle. He was against the settlement because he felt, I, I don't know if he said this to me, but I'm thinking in my mind that maybe that might've been the why part 
but I know he was adamantly against the settlement. He said, we collected all this information, investigation. We was prepared to go to court and win. And he said they didn't want no part of the settlement. And those two lawyers that came in and decided to settle instead of fighting, those were Cochran and Weitzman, is that right? Cochran, as soon as he came in, that was the first thing that Cochran was only on the on on the note of settling. He started negotiating with the insurance company right away. And because the insurance company did not agree at first, the insurance company did not agree with settling because they I think they, they said they don't settle in criminal cases. But they he had to come back and remind them that this was only a, an investigation. It was not an actual case. He convinced the insurance company that they should, uh, on a liability note, that they should uh, pay the settlement. I didn't hear anything in the media about settlement until the insurance company agreed that they would pay the settlement. And then once they said they would pay the settlement and agreed to pay it, that's when I heard them say that Michael Jackson, they, I didn't even hear him announce it on the news at all until then. Cochran was on that note from day one. How did you meet the journalist, Mary Fisher? I never met Mary. Uh, what, <laughs> this part is going to really be funny. I found her article on the internet that I knew nothing about. I didn't know that she had written, but let me tell you why it caught my attention. Was Michael Jackson framed? That was my first time hearing anybody literally pointing to the real truth was Michael Jackson framed. Up until then, it was all about he's innocent, he's is, oh, he's guilty because he settled. That story was the first time, and I said it like this, I said, this is the first story that's pointing towards the truth. And so then I downloaded it, I read it, and as I'm as I'm reading the story, she starts talking about a secretary that worked for uh, Rothman, and she was describing my situation, even to the place of saying that it was a comment that came out of the mouth of a secretary. Well, I was the only secretary that worked. I said, whoa, wait a minute. Where did she get this from? This is me she's talking about. So I called her office. <laughs> I said, I was curious to find out how did you get this information? I had not given them my information. I had not written the book yet. I was curious to find out how was she so accurate and how did she get such detail inside the office information that seemed like it could have only come from me, but I didn't, she didn't interview me. So I called her office and I asked her, I just wanted to know how did you get this information? And she said, oh, I got it from another secretary that worked with him. She was, I said, cause I was the only sec. She said, no, it was another sec. And so I knew that that part was not accurate. I said, well, first of all, I was the only secretary at the time that could have given her that information. So I kind of put it together that she got this information some kind of way, but it just didn't come by me. But as I was reading her uh, article, she was accurate. I, I said, wow, this is accurate. You know, she's accurately depicting what was going on inside our office. She alluded to the uh, 93, the 92, where he was being sued or he was going to sue the building and he was in debt, heavily in debt. And, you know, a lot of her information was accurate. I just, I just, for the life of me, didn't give it to her and, and was curious to find out how she got it. 
Well, it clearly is talking about you because it even refers to the secretary keeping the diary and writing down the comments. And then the comments are the comments that you wrote down. Right. So did you at any time give copies, photocopies or allow Pelicano or anyone to take copies of your diary? I think, you know, I think I may have done that. I think Pelicana, I later believe that uh, she got it from Pelicana because he had everything. He he said that was why he was really upset about the settlement. He was ready to go to court and win. Uh, I think Pelicana was the only one that I did give it to. Okay. Now, when you wrote the book, you mentioned earlier you couldn't have anticipated the whirlwind that happened after the book came out. So what were you referring to then? Well, right after I released the book, I, the book wasn't even released, as a matter of fact. When the second allegation hit, the media frenzy started. It was just like the first time where the media was just hounding for information. And I recognized that here we go again. You know, my book was not published at the time. I had a publisher. We were stuck on the photo. I wanted that photo and we hadn't received permission to use it yet. The only thing that was out there was the press release of the upcoming book, not the actual book. And so they just went on the press release. They were contacting my publisher every day. I was getting calls. The people wanted to interview me, wanted me to, you know, people. I mean, I had people come from Canada. I had people come from Japan. I had people uh, come from Europe. You know, I ha I was getting bombarded. And then the very first phone call I received was from Joe Jackson. And uh, when Joe called me and he found out because they were saying, you know, the young lady, Geraldine Hughes, the secretary, has a book that's saying that Michael is innocent. So, of course, he wanted to support me. But I told him, I said, but we I don't have permission to use the photo. And that's what's the holdup. And Joe instantly, Joe, I think he told he called me back. And when Joe called me back, he said, you tell Miss Hughes she's got permission to use the photo. So I did receive support from Michael's family. But that was after the fact. I had already written the book. We were already, the book was already published, uh, ready to be released. So they just assisted me to make sure that the book got out there, that no, nothing stopped the book from getting out there. The fans came from everywhere. Michael's fans started knocking on the door. They wanted me to go everywhere. They wanted me to come in and see, I was, you know, work, I was still working as a legal secretary. I was taking care of nephews at the time, along with my own two children. So I had a lot of responsibility. I wasn't really in a position to be, I didn't know that it was going to do all of that. I, I actually had to stop working for a whole year just to go the different place. They wanted me to go here. They wanted me to come here. Want me to go speak there, take the book here. The fans were relentless on me on that one. Like, here, Miss Hughes, you got to go here. You got to go there. They were booking my travel. <laughs> they were, you know, I got a chance to see that Michael's fans are just amazing, you know, and in their support of him. And it wasn't just that they were fanatics. They were doctors. They were lawyers. They were people, you know, just like ordinary people. They weren't, you know, you, you would think that, you know, that this is what a fan would do. No, his fans were young, old, white, black, all genres. I went, I remember going to Fort de France, Martinique. I didn't expect that. I did not expect that. I thought the book was a least attention grabbing source of putting information out that you just write it, you get it published 
And then if people want to buy it, they buy it. If they don't care to hear about it, they don't. But at least I felt like in my heart, I've done my part. I put the truth out there. It was the most incredible thing I think I've ever encountered, even more so than the frenzy of the Chalmers, because there were more people that wanted the truth than I felt wanted the lie. What was your overall experience of trying to get the media to promote your book at that time? Well, it wasn't me. I wasn't calling the media. The media was calling me. Bill O'Reilly's producers called me. Geraldo's producers called me. We weren't contacting the media at all. I wasn't not trying to go the media route, but they kept calling and contacting. My publisher thought it would be good for, even though the book wasn't out yet, my publisher thought it would be good for promotion. It would help in the promotion if I got out and started talking about the book. But it was just to my surprise how some media was glad to hear. I know everything that the fans did, it was a welcome audience, you know. But when it came to the media, you know, I was kind of surprised to see that they weren't really, some of them I could tell were probably interviewing me maybe to prove me wrong, maybe to prove that I'm not telling the truth. But I was answering questions that they never had answered before. I was giving them information that they never had. And I remember uh, there was a 2020 interview and there were like about four producers that were throwing questions at me. And one of the producers, I could tell by her line of questions that she probably thought Michael was guilty. And when I got through answering the questions, that lady was walking me out of there and saying, I just don't believe they did this to She was convinced at the end of the interview that Michael Jackson was innocent, not guilty. And do you know they never aired that interview? And that was the best, that was the most thorough interview I had ever given anybody. And they never aired it. I kind of was taken back by that. I said, why? It seemed like that they go to no length to prove to try and prove that he's guilty and you got the truth before you, you got information that you never heard before, answers to questions that you've never had and you don't even air the interview. You know, even in the media, the hands of justice was not swaying in Michael Jackson's favor. They didn't really want to know the truth. Possibly there were some, um, I think Geraldo, he was, he was very fair. Bill O'Reilly was fair. Bill O'Reilly gave me the last word. I was shaking going to his interview because I, I decided to start researching the people and finding out what kind of interviewer they were. And I saw he was chopping people up and spitting them out. I said, oh, Lord, he's bringing me on the show to chop. I, That's OK. I'm, you know, I wasn't afraid to go and tell the truth. Now, if I'm lying, one of these shows should be tripping me up by now because you don't remember the lie. It's the truth that you remember. And he actually gave me the last word. So you never really knew you know, until you win. You never really knew whether this person is like you. You're interviewing me right now. I'm presuming that you want to hear the truth, but you, you know, what we experienced with Michael is a lot of people came in to uh, gain his trust, got his information, and then turned around and, and turned state's evidence on him. So you never really know. You can't really prejudge. You know, you could just say, well, you know, I'm going to tell my truth. And now how you receive it, how you, whether you believe it, that's on you. There's a phrase that you use in the book, which is that Michael Jackson received black justice in white America. To what extent do you think that various decisions from 
the unprecedented court decisions to the funneling of enormous resources into trying to prove him guilty, but failing to do even the most cursory research, uh, an investigation into the extortion plot, and even down to the media and what it was and was not willing to promote. How much of all of that in America do you think was impacted by Michael Jackson's race? Well, you know, there was a time when there was no justice for Black people. And we're not talking a long time ago. We're talking in my lifetime. Somebody could go to court and accuse someone of something and, and they with no evidence. And, and they send them down the river. There's still some states that have some racist ways of doing things where we already know that there's some states you, you don't even want to go to court in those states. They will throw the book at you. So I think the reason I'm saying that this is this has been in my life and time where there was a time when you could kill somebody, even murder a black person, and there was no justice for the murderers. Emmett Till, we're still wondering, you know, how that case never got uh, brought to justice, you know. Uh, and then we got some more recent cases too, a lot of recent cases. So. You know, a person would think that someone of Michael Jackson's stature loved by the world. I mean, everybody all over the world loves Michael Jackson. But you would think that he would have gotten better justice for no other reason but because he was just the greatest entertainer, loved all over the world. And you would think that the that he would have gotten better justice when you really look at this case and how the case was handled and how they were denying motions that should not have been denied, how they were allowing certain things to happen that normally that goes against their rules of court and how they still allow. You have no choice but to think of it like, well, was he treated like this because he was black and not because he was the greatest? Because I know worldwide, they love Michael Jackson. They are erecting statues of Michael Jackson in different countries. You know, and so I know worldwide he is a loved uh, uh, individual. Uh, he's honored and admired for his gift, his talent, his humanitarian. But in the United States, why was he treated like that here? Why did they allow that to happen here? I'm very, very glad that in 2005 he was vindicated. I was so glad about that because that just really gave me peace in knowing that everything I was saying was accurate because I said if there was something that was sinister that was you know he never would have walked out that day if he really was a child molester and a lot of the fans were contacting me and you know uh, getting trying to get comments from me and I had already concluded to the fan base I said you know the fact that I was there in that attorney's office you got to know God was protecting Michael Jackson that whole time, God protected him by putting somebody there who could tell you the truth. And I said, so when the fan, when he was in court and it was looking bad, because remember, they didn't even let cameras in the courtroom. So what was going on inside the court and what they were reporting were two days. They, they made it look like in the media that Michael was getting ready to get convicted. They were showing the prison that he would be staying in. But so the fans were coming to me and asking me, you know, please, Miss Hughes, what do you got to say? Give us something. And I told him, I said, remember, I told you that God was protecting Michael. I said, God is still protecting Michael. I said, you just got to trust God on this one. 
you know, and I just tell him, don't go by what all you're hearing and all that they're saying. Just know that God has got him in his hands. Michael Jackson was honest. He was good. He was kind. He was doing a good thing. And you don't have to worry. God is going to protect him, continue to protect him. I believe that's exactly what happened in 2005 and all their efforts to try and put him in prison, to falsely accuse him now at a higher scale, using a less credible witnesses that shouldn't have, he shouldn't have never gotten arrested with the witnesses that they brought forward. And the mere fact that Snedden was just so desperate to prove that he was right and now was like a vendetta, he didn't care. He brought the most bogus case, you know, bought bogus charges that he had been accused of doing with someone prior and it just, God didn't let it happen. If it should have happened, yeah, it should have happened the second time because he really put, he pulled out the stops to get him that time, you know, but he didn't get him because I truly believe that God had him protected. God had had him in his hands the whole time because I came to work for the attorney before they made that allegation. God moves before you. He don't wait till the, he already know what you plotting and planning. So if he going to protect you, he going to put your, he, he's put his protection in place up front. And I believe that's why he walked out in 2005, because God protected him from those false allegations. Do you think if you had worked in the same office, sat at the same desk, heard the same comments, written them down in the same diary, and then written the same book, but you were a white man, you would have been listened to more than you were? Do you think 2020 would have canned your interview? Do you think Bill O'Reilly would have spoken to you the way he spoke to you? How do, do you think that your race and your gender has affected the way that you have been responded to by the press? Um, I don't think it was really the attack was against me. It's just that they were trying to sensationalize the story for money gain, I'm sure. Their focus was on proving that he was a, a child molester. So I don't think, I think I got a lot of opportunities. I just, you know, I really, I'm not a fame type of person where I, I don't glory in attention. I could have promoted more. I could have, you know, gotten me an agent, you know, but that wasn't my reason for doing it. My reason for doing it was just to get the truth out. And I said, there's some that for the ones who want to know the truth, I already knew full well going into it that there were going to be some who won't believe me don't want to hear what I got to say because they're on a different mission, you know? And I said, my information is just for those who are really seeking the truth and want to know what really happened. And that's it. I didn't come forward for fame. I didn't come forward for, you know, to be gloried and to be believed by everybody. You know, I already knew that, you know, that there would be some that would not want to hear, could care less, you know, get out the way, you know, they're not the reason why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for the ones who just simply wanted to know the truth. And that's it. Now, you've been talking for a few years about the movie, that there's some plan to turn the book Redemption into a movie. So is that a documentary movie or a biopic type movie? And where in the process are you now? How far have you gone? We've gone through some interesting stages. Uh, Joe Jackson was the first one that wanted to uh, make it into a movie while he was still alive, and early on as well, too. 
he had a, a three film distribution deal. So it was not the only movie he had. Uh, there was two other books he wanted to mine was the third one. He was the first one that sparked my interest in terms of making a movie out of it. And um, I watched him go through the process of, you know, uh, soliciting investors. And, you know, I watched how he went about doing it. And then when um, when Michael passed, I kind of watched how it just took him in a different direction. Uh, he was, you know, as I'm sure you know, with all the whole family, they were mourning you know, the morning was just incredible. And uh, so he kind of set that on a shelf. He was being pulled in different directions. So I knew that in order to proceed with that, I had to pick the project up of turning the book into a film. He He's the one that first interested me in doing it and watching him go through the process. So I knew nothing about writing, uh, making, I didn't know nothing about writing a book when I wrote it. So I said, okay, here goes another something I don't know anything about. And so I said, but I felt like God kind of guided me through that whole process. I said, well, God, if this is something you want me to do, you're going to have to guide me through this again. And so I started knocking on doors about turning the book into a film. People started putting the word out. And then uh, we were at the table of negotiation for the film budget when COVID hit and they shut down all the theaters. And I said, okay, <laughs> I said, okay, here, here we go with, you know, we got to figure out a different strategy. But the thing that really propelled me to move forward and, and literally I'm, I'm being very relentless with it right now because you know, I my theory was the lie is going to keep being told until the truth is told. I, and I, I even said that to, uh, you know, I had uh, the help from some of the family as well, trying to help me with the movie process, with the uh, approval of Joe Jackson and Katherine Jackson. But, you know, one of the things uh, they said was, well, maybe if we leave it alone, it'll go away. The lie will go away. Well, you know, when uh, uh, the Leaving Neverland, uh, when I first heard it was it was being made and it was getting ready to release and they were announcing about the Sundance, they were airing it at Sundance. I went to Sundance to go see that documentary. And this was the crazy part. When I heard that they were going to air it at Sundance, they were selling the tickets. So I got online the day that they released the tickets. I got I go online to purchase the tickets. Almost an hour after they announced it, the tickets were all gone. You couldn't get them. And so I said, you know, I said, I got to go. I got to go hear what they're trying to say. You know, these were the ones that defended Michael wholeheartedly. So I got to go hear what they got to say. And uh, I went on and got a hotel uh, reservation, got a plane ticket, didn't have a ticket to get in though. And so they told me, they said, well, there's a line that's going to be outside for people that got tickets. And then they, there's going to be another line where if you don't have a ticket, you can go get in that line. So when I got there, the line of the people that didn't have tickets, it surrounded the building. <laughs> the line where the people had tickets, it, it was a long line, but it wasn't as big as the other line. So I just said, I said, well, I came to get in. So I don't think I need to stand in the line where they don't have tickets. I went and stood in the line where they had tickets. Oh, sorry, Geraldine, I've lost you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hello? Unfortunately, 
This is where our interview with Geraldine came to an abrupt end, as Geraldine's internet suddenly cut out. We tried for an hour to re-establish a connection, but every time Geraldine managed to get back online, her internet failed again within minutes. We initially feared the entire episode was a write-off, as the abrupt loss of connection meant Geraldine's audio never even uploaded to the cloud. Fortunately, regular host Elise Capron, who was in mission control for this episode, was able to help Geraldine retrieve and upload a local backup. But our efforts to schedule a second recording session to finish the interview, and to get Geraldine to share with us some never-before-seen images of her invaluable 1993 diary, were unsuccessful. Geraldine isn't much of a social media person, but she can be found on Facebook under her own name. She also sells copies of her book, Redemption, at the recommended retail price on Amazon under the name Hughes Production, whereas some sellers online are charging hundreds of dollars. If you buy direct from Geraldine, she'll even sign the book for you before she posts it. I've been Charles Thompson. I can be found on Twitter at at C.E. Thompson or on Instagram at at C.E. Thompson Journo. The MJ Cast can be found on Twitter and Instagram at at the MJ Cast and on Mastodon at at the MJ Cast at Mastodon.social. You can subscribe to the MJ Cast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, and all of our episodes are later uploaded to YouTube. Thank you for listening.